Imagine you find yourself on a deserted island, and all you have with you is a copy of the Bible. You have no experience with Christianity, and all you know about the church will come from reading this. How would you imagine the church to function? Now, you may not go to church. Maybe this is your first time in a while. Uh, But if you go to church, think about your current church experience. Is it even close My guess is that when you think of church, it's a far cry from the early church. Luke tells us about the early church in the book of Acts. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbered about 120. So Jesus died. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven, leaving behind 120 followers. These were the apostles other disciples, women, and Jesus' brothers. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So at the beginning of the day, there were 120. By the end of the day, there were 3,100 people in the church. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So every day... New people were becoming Christians. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The early church was on fire. We estimate that the message of Christ spread throughout the Middle East, Greece, the Roman Empire, into Europe, and to Africa within 40 years of Jesus' resurrection. Why was there so much excitement? Why did it grow so fast? I think it was because everybody was so excited about Jesus that they couldn't contain themselves. They told everyone. They knew what they were about. A church is more effective when everybody knows what it's about. This is not a church thing. This is not a Christian thing. This is a people thing. If you run a business, if you lead an organization, if you direct a school, if you teach a classroom, if you coach a team, the deal goes better if everybody knows what it's about. The U.S. military departed from Afghanistan two weeks ago in humiliation. The interesting thing about that war is that the U.S. military won practically every battle. Time and again, we pushed back Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. My son Mark served two tours of duty there, and he says, Dad, it didn't matter what situation they put us in. If we were outnumbered, we figured out a way to win every time. Our leaders told us that they had developed the Afghan military into a disciplined fighting force. But it turned out not to be true. So ultimately, because of the way we departed, the enemy won the war. What went wrong? Now, all kinds of people will pontificate 
about this for months to come, but I think one reason is because our leaders lost track of what they were about. We drifted from defeating the enemy to nation building. In the same way, a church must be crystal clear about what it is trying to accomplish. Our purpose is to inspire people to follow Jesus. So the way we live, what we say, we want to inspire people to follow Jesus as well. In some of Jesus' final words, he said, Go and make disciples of all nations. We don't just make any kind of disciples. Paul wrote, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable people, who will also be qualified to teach others. So we want to make disciples who make disciples. Now, it's important to identify our target. We serve five groups. We serve the uninterested. These people are not Christians. They don't go to church, and they're not interested. Some of them might even be anti-Christian. We serve the spiritually curious. They don't go to church. They're not Christians, but they're intrigued by Jesus, and they're open. We serve believers. These are people who have given their lives to Christ recently. They're new in their faith. We serve disciples. These are people who may have been Christians for a number of years. They may have gone to church for a long time. They've read the Bible. They know their faith. And then we serve disciple makers. These, these people are everything disciples are, but they make other disciples. They lead family members and friends to Christ, pray with them to give their life to Christ. They help people grow in their faith so that they can disciple still others. Now our focus among these five is to reach young families who do not go to church. So we've made up this mythical family, John and Wendy, they're in their 30s, and they have three kids. They're not Christians, they don't go to church, so when we make decisions, where everything we're thinking about, we ask, how will this help us reach John and Wendy? Jesus is our guide in making disciples. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. So in that, Jesus says, follow me. So we want people to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus and experience his abundant life. Before Jesus could send out Peter, James, and John, and the others, he had to do a work in their lives. And so we need to be changed by Jesus. We have to grow. And then we are to fish for people. We're to be on mission with Jesus. We seek to inspire people to be on mission with Jesus in making disciples of teenagers, singles, marrieds, divorced parents, empty nesters, who in turn make disciples of others. So how do we make disciples who make disciples? One of the primary ways is through our growth groups and our discipleship groups. Jesus said, I will... Build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, the word for church is the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering or congregation. It's a gathering, a movement of Jesus followers 
who come together to strengthen themselves to spread the news about Christ. Over the years, however, people's understanding of church changed from a movement of people to a building. Sometime after A.D. 300, Constantine, who was to become the emperor of the Roman Empire, became a Christian. In A.D. 313, he legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. You'd think that would be a good thing. But actually, it changed the Christian movement that had been an underground thing, hated by the establishment, into an accepted institution that was blessed by the Roman Empire. Over time, the church became not so much a movement of people, but a building. And people couldn't be the church wherever they went, but only when they gathered in the building with the leaders of the church. Then in the 16th century, a man named William Tyndale showed up in England. Smile, William. He was a very stern man. He translated the Bible into English. So the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. He translated it into English, but they, England wouldn't allow him to publish it. So he went to his friend, Martin Luther, who helped him get it published in Germany, and then he smuggled it in to England. For that, he was convicted, hung, and his body was burned to ashes. But it was too late. Too many people had already read the Bible now in English for the first time. Before, they had only heard it spoken by priests in church in Latin. When he came to the word church, or ecclesia, he translated it congregation. He didn't translate it church because he knew that would have the meaning for everybody, a building. So he brought it back to its original meaning of a movement of people who gather together to strengthen themselves to spread the news about Christ. Now, you probably understand this. The Portland Community Church is not a building. It's a movement of followers of Jesus who want to make a difference in Portland. This is the place where we gather to be strengthened so we can go out and spread the news about Christ. To understand what church means, I think the best thing to do is go back and look at the early church. When we look at the early church, we find out what church is all about. If you're here for the first time and Christianity, Christ, all this is new to you, you could not have picked a better weekend to be here. A church is more effective when everyone knows what it's about. So take a Bible. There should be a Bible under the seat in front of you. And turn to the book of Acts. It's found on page 1091. Luke wrote the book of Acts and summarizes what the early church was about. Luke tells us at least five things the early church was about. First, they were a Jesus-focused church. When you look at the Apostle Peter's message to people, you see that it was all about Jesus. I'll just read you a few verses. Fellow Israelites, he's talking to a Jewish audience, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, 
was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You know about Jesus. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. The central thing is not we believe something is true. All religions have something they believe. The central teaching is we believe something that happened. How did the early church make it when the Jewish establishment was so against them and the Roman Empire persecuted them? Jesus was raised from the dead. The tomb was empty. It was undeniable. I have to say, if a man can predict his death and resurrection and then pulls it off, I have to go with him. The early church was focused on Jesus Christ and the fact that he was raised from the dead. They told everybody about Jesus and changed the world. Our purpose is to inspire people to follow Jesus. A church is more effective when everyone knows what it is about. Second, they were a learning church. The early church members devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The key word is devoted. They were hungry to hear the apostles' teaching. They were hungry to learn from the Word of God. If a church is to make a difference today, the people have to be constantly growing Study after study has shown that the number one way a person can grow as a follower of Christ is by reading and reflecting on the Bible. Many Christ followers want to read the Bible, but statistics show that daily Bible reading is far from the norm for most followers of Christ. Why? Most people say they're too busy to set aside time to regularly read the Bible. But that doesn't make sense. Yes, it takes time to read the Bible, but it saves us more time because in the Bible we learn God's instructions or how we can avoid making foolish and time-wasting mistakes. There are people in the church today who have been Christians for years, but they still don't know who's on first. But we're trying to change that. One of the secret sauces of Portland Community Church is we have four people who write journals for us to do. So it gives us something to read during the week, and we can read it from the Bible. Then we can write about it and think about what it means. And then these journals are connected to whatever we're talking about on Sunday morning. People that use these journals tell me time and again, these are so good. And if they're in a growth group as well, they say, it's amazing. I study this, I think about it, then I go to my group, we talk about it, then we come and we hear you guys talk about it, and it all makes more sense. So if you haven't picked one up, I encourage you to pick one up in the back. Our hosts will hand one to you. Uh, And uh, all the growth groups this fall are going to be studying the journal. Now in the winter and spring terms, we're going to allow them other options uh, if, they, if they prefer. Um, 
Maybe you're not particularly interested in Christian faith. Or maybe you are curious about Christ but have never read the Bible. Or maybe you're a follower of Christ, but you've gotten away from reading the Bible. Possibly you would say, this year, I'm going to read the Bible. A church is more effective when everyone knows what it is about. Third, they were a worshiping church. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, that means communion, celebration of that, and to prayer. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, praising God. All four of these references are about worship. They worshiped God and they did that and more. They met every day. The writers to the Hebrew says, Andrea mentioned that. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We need to encourage each other to stay faithful. God knows that once a week we need to get out of the office, the school, wherever we perform our labor, to gather with other people to receive another spiritual meal. He knows that in the workplace we face a stream of steady challenges. We have to compete. We have to push and drive ourselves. In the world, so many things are happening and we get beaten down emotionally. After a few days in that environment, even the strongest Christians need another spiritual meal. We convene to replenish the food supply and refocus spiritually. Through worship, we're re-energized and renewed. We're strengthened to better spread the news about Christ. Now, during the past 18 months of COVID, many of us have gotten comfortable watching the live stream from home. Uh, And I'm thankful for all the people that watch the live stream. Over two-thirds of our church watch by live stream. And I'm thankful for our tech team and the wonderful job they do. Uh, And of those who attend church in person, statistics tell us that the average attendance is 1.6 times a month. You say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. In one sense, that is absolutely true. If you're married or you hope to be married someday, what if your spouse said, I don't have to come home every night to be married to you? I mean, I can't imagine how my marriage to Jory would work with that. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but you cannot thrive without the church. Fourth, they were a group-centered church. They devoted themselves to fellowship. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. We know that the first century Christians were persecuted. The Sadducees, who ran the local government, made sure that the Christians lost their jobs or couldn't find new ones. So many of them were really hurting. But other believers 
did what they had to, sold property if need be and possessions to make sure they didn't go hungry. They met together and supported each other. They loved to be together. In a community-starved world, one of the most important things that draws people is the magnetic power of a church community marked by loving relationships. Imagine you have a child. You want to grow and be a positive influence on the human race. Your child has to pass geometry with at least a C grade to get into college, to get a better job. In the high school your child attends, they have chosen to teach geometry in a class of 500 students. The teacher stands in front of the students and writes geometry problems on the board. She does this for 45 minutes one day a week and then dismisses the class. She doesn't have time to tutor individual students and she doesn't have a plan for students who are struggling. How would you feel about the school your child is attending when so much is riding on the line? It would make your blood boil. You wouldn't stand for it. Why do we react so adversely to that yet allow the same thing to happen in our churches every week? Our people are struggling with the most important subject in life, salvation, how to get right with God. The pastor stands in front of a big screen for 30 minutes once a week and tells people how to solve life's biggest problems. The pastor doesn't have time to tutor each one, and he doesn't raise up people to do that. Now, at Portland Community Church, we have nine growth groups and a few discipleship groups where you can be tutored, make friends, and can help you grow in Christ, to meet Christ, and walk with people that will walk through you day by day. I'd like the leaders of these groups uh, to stand. So if you're a group leader of one of these, uh, your assistant group leader, or you're a part of the growth groups team, would you stand on your feet? All right, so these are just some of our people. And uh, by the way, guys, we're having a growth group leaders meeting after the service, so uh, we're going to do it right here in the back. Thank you. Thank you for serving uh, in that way. Um, our growth groups are one of the best places where we make disciples who make disciples. Do you see that a church is more effective when everybody knows what it is about? Fifth, they were a disciple's. They were a make-disciples-who-make-disciples church. Uh, 3,000 people came into the church in one day. It had to be chaotic. What did they do with so many people? What was the plan? The plan was to make disciples who make disciples. They were enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Christians apparently impressed people. They found favor. Miracles happened on a regular basis. People were healed. Everyone in the church could not stop talking about Jesus. It wasn't just Peter, James, and John. It was everybody who talked about Jesus wherever they went. 
In 2015, Hyatt had 97,000 employees. Airbnb, by contrast, had 2,300 employees. Yet Airbnb had more rooms available than Hyatt. By 2018, Airbnb had more units available for rent than the top five hotel chains combined. How did they do this? They put the hotel industry into the hands of everyday people. Not everyone has tens of millions of dollars to buy land and build a luxury hotel. But anyone with a smartphone can now rent out a room in his or her house. They rapidly grew to 4 million listings without building a single facility. Churches that make a difference make disciples who make disciples. They make clear that everyone is to make disciples who make disciples. Jesus rose from the dead and he says, go, make disciples. It was a command to all of us, not just pastors. All the people are disciples who make disciples. All the people share Jesus with people they know who don't believe in him, in their families, in their work, in their schools. Maybe you're a Christian, and it's dawning on you as I speak that you're not here just to be a spectator. The pastor is not the only player. You're a player who is to make disciples. A church is more effective when everyone knows what it is about. Our purpose is to inspire people to follow Jesus. We do this by making disciples who make disciples. One of the best ways to make disciples who make disciples is through our growth groups and discipleship groups. If you've never given your life to Christ, I invite you to do so right now as we pray. You can become a disciple by inviting Jesus to forgive your sin and come into your life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Luke who told us in the book of Acts about the early church. And it is amazing what you did through those early believers, how they swept through the world so quickly. And Father, we want to be a church like the early church that's on fire and seeing people come to Christ and people grow as disciples and make other disciples. And we commit ourselves to that right now. If you want to commit yourself to that venture, would you tell that to God as we pray? And if you've never told Jesus you believe he was raised from the dead and you want him in your life, you can ask him to come in right now as we pray. Thank you, Father, for what you did in the early church and we want to be part of that right now and this year in Portland in Jesus name we pray